Well, I want to invite you guys to turn over in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, where we're going to be spending the next bit of our time together this morning. Um, If you're visiting with us, I'll just say quickly that our church, mostly in our time uh, focusing on the Bible on Sunday mornings, we mostly move verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. That way we're covering a lot of ground that maybe we wouldn't cover if, if we were just depending on things we already had something to say about. For content or, or things where we where we had a certain agenda or an axe to grind, uh, we, we submit to the word by just taking what comes next. And right now we're studying an old letter called First Peter, one of the first documents written uh, about Christianity by a friend of Jesus who had seen him and heard him and, and was an eyewitness to not only his life and his work, but also his resurrection. This man was given a job by Jesus to help other people know who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And this letter is part of him doing that, taking up that work and doing it. Uh, he, he wrote it to early, probably brand new Christians scattered throughout a part of the Roman world where very few Christians would have lived and for whom Christianity would have meant a complete transformation of what they took for granted about life in the world. He's trying to help reorient them to what it means to be a Christian in the world. And we're trying to follow his train of thought and understand how that helps us. So that's where you found us this morning. Um, I want to I want to encourage you to flip over because it'll be a lot easier for you to follow what we're going to do in the next little bit here if you've got it right in front of you. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, I want you to know we have provided copies at the center of each aisle here, up under the chair on the center of each aisle. Uh, those are meant for you if you don't have a copy of the Bible, especially if you don't own one. We would love for you to keep it, take it with you, take it home, and and please follow up with us and give us a chance to talk to you about what you read there and any questions that it might stir up for you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 is where we are this morning. Uh, and for the second week in a row, we have come to a text that has a long and painful history of misinterpretation. Last week, uh, we looked at a passage that was about slaves and masters. And we talked a little bit about how tragically wrong many Christians, even in our own country, had been about the meaning of that text and with what terrible effects they taught on the meaning of that text. And this week from slaves and masters we move into a text on wives and husbands a text that has also been filtered through a host of cultural assumptions and thought to confirm all sorts of things that it doesn't actually say now i'll be honest in this case this passage on wives and husbands maybe even more so than in the the, than the text that we looked at last week on slaves and masters once you correct for the, all the possible misinterpretations of what Peter says, what his, his message is still going to read like a smack in the face for the fact that it holds out different roles for each gender in marriage. There's no filtering that part out. That is what he means to say. And it'll read like a smack in the face because those roles can seem to us imbalanced in both power and even in dignity. Texts like the one we're going to read and and, and talk about here in a minute uh, can actually be so alienating that they might even drive you away if you're considering Christianity for yourself, maybe for the first time, if you're trying to weigh what it is to be a Christian, to be with Jesus. I want to just name the elephant in the room because it has gone that way for people in the past. A text like this one can, can be the, the stiff arm that pushes you away from Christianity. I remember uh, one of my favorite texts that I read in grad school uh, years back was a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain. This book is awesome. Highly recommend it to you. It's a journalist who, uh, after 
investigating this high profile case that got a lot of media attention where a snake handling preacher had tried to kill his own wife by sticking her hand into the rattlesnake trap uh, cages that they use for their snake handling uh, transportation to and from church. Uh, the preacher tried to kill his wife by, by making her get bit by this rattlesnake. This journalist goes to cover this case and ends up just endlessly fascinated with this whole subculture that he didn't know existed that he really wanted to understand so he lives among these snake handling christians for about a year just trying to understand them what makes them tick why do they see things the way that they do and the book itself is a remarkable example of empathy i mean this guy i think does a tremendous job trying to understand them on their terms and so remarkable in his empathy that and this is a spoiler alert i'm just going to go ahead and spoil this for you in case you're uh sorry if you're interested in reading the book but he actually by the end of the book takes a turn handling a snake and has some sort of moving spiritual experience through the whole thing as part of one of their worship services that's how far he went with this community but the book ends when he finds out what they think about gender the book ends when he finds out they believe that there are different roles for men and women in the home and in the church. And it's at that point that this journalist is like, I'm out. And he had actually been thinking about joining them. He was one of them. He was even snake handling. He, would, he could follow them all the way to the rattlesnakes around his neck. But when he finds out about different gender roles, it's a jump the shark moment for him with Christianity. I realize that might be your reaction to the text this morning when we read it and talk about it in a moment. I want to appeal to you right here at the beginning to withhold that judgment for a bit. To be suspicious of your own cultural biases and how they might skew what you hear this morning. And to bear with me as I just try to simply guide you through the details of this ancient text. My simple goal this morning is to try to make the message of this text on Peter's terms as clear as I possibly can and to clear away to that end to, to clear away things we might misunderstand or read into this text and to try to bring out as I'm doing that implications of what this text says in a way that we can relate to our own lives and in a way that will be useful to you whether you're already married or considering marriage or the friend of, 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 of friends who are married trying to be part of their support system I, I hope what I say this morning about marriage will be useful to you now what i want to do simply is 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 walk you through how what peter says about wives and what peter says about husbands ties back to what he's already said about hope what we've been tracing throughout this letter is that hope is peter's major theme he began the letter by reminding them that Jesus is alive even though he was once dead and that because he's alive, he can offer you new life that you otherwise couldn't have, that you've been born again into what Peter calls a living hope. And then this letter from that point forward has been both unpacking what that hope is and trying to help you see what difference that hope makes in your life. In the chapter just before the one we're looking at this morning, Peter had said, you are like aliens living in a world that's not your home, belonging to a kingdom that's somewhere else that's coming. But here you are living here in this culture in allegiance to that king and to that kingdom. What he does from that point forward is try to show you different ways that your citizenship in that kingdom, which makes you an alien in this kingdom, is going to show up. How is the difference, the alien identity, going to show up in some specific relationships that you have? So he's talked about how it relate, how, what it'll mean for how you relate to your, 
you're rulers in this, in this world. You belong to that kingdom, but you, you live under an emperor now or a president and a congress now or whatever. How does, that, how does that affect you? Last week talked about for those who were in the institution of slavery, what would it look like for them to be, belong to an inheritance or a hope that's still coming, but relate to a very this worldly present institution that they're caught up in? And today, the example is, is marriage. What will it look like to be a wife and a husband now in this world when you belong to one that's still coming and your hopes are set there? That's what we're going to try to unpack together. And what I want to do is, is read the seven verses we're going to cover this morning. I'm going to read them all at once. And then we're going to go back through them in, in a lot more detail than what we normally would in a sermon like this one. I mean, a lot of times uh, we're able to spend a good bit of our time uh, talking about implications and unpacking, trying to press into our lives what the text says. But sometimes the best way to respect the text and to help you guys is to just spend a lot of time on the details because you can't assume anything. You can't go past it quickly and get the point quickly and move on into implications. We gotta just clear away a lot of what might be misunderstood. So a lot of the sermon today is gonna be that. It's gonna be detail by detail working through what Peter says to try to understand it and learn from it together this morning. I wanna begin by reading the first seven verses of chapter three and I'm gonna ask you to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. This is the word of the Lord to us. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, braiding of the hair, putting on gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's eyes is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. You can be seated. Uh, One thing you probably noticed as we were reading through those verses there is that almost all of them are to the wives. That's where Peter's emphasis is. And we're going to spend more of our time this morning on these verses, partly because there's more of them, but also because it's it's especially the words of the wives that have been misinterpreted and can so easily be misinterpreted. So we need to to slow down here and take the details slowly and try to understand them together. So most of our time will be on the first point this morning and then we'll move to the second one. The first point I've just simply called hopeful wives. What does it look like to relate to your husband as a wife when you have the hope of heaven in front of you? When, when you have an inheritance provided and protected and preserved by God for you. The command at the outset of these verses is really straightforward. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. He says you should be subject to them even if they're not Christians. That's what he means by even if they... Uh, even if some do not obey the word. Obey the word is a kind of euphemism for Peter for, for believing the gospel, for hearing the offer of repentance and belief in Jesus and accepting it. So even if they've heard the gospel and rejected it, still be subject to them because maybe by your conduct, 
by the way you treat them, even without a word, they might be won over to Christianity. This is the command we have to understand this morning. What does it mean to be subject to your husband? I want to show you both what it means, what I think Peter means here, and why Peter says what he says, um, how it's connected to hope. But, 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 but to start out with what it means, means first clearing away a lot of ground and showing what it doesn't mean. Because we bring to this text a lot of assumptions. We, we, we hear these words, be subject to your husband, and we immediately, sometimes, I don't know about you, but a, a lot of us, myself included, can immediately think we know what that means and move on. And so what I want to do first for, for several minutes here is clear away possible misunderstandings of what it means to be subject to your husband based on what we can read from Peter here and then come back into what it does mean and why it's so important. I've got to clear some ground here. I think the easiest way for us to misinterpret this text, the first thing I want to make sure you don't do is to chalk it up as a relic of a time when women were viewed as barely above property, believed to be inferior in every way and expected to be at the disposal of their husbands. That is how women were viewed and how marriage often went down in the time that Peter was writing. And I think one of the the first and most important mistakes we could make in coming to this text is just to assume Peter was, was just captive to his time just sort of carried along by a stream that he didn't ask for, couldn't control, was just part of, and that for him, women were dispensable. That's one way that we could misread this text. I want to show you why that is not what's going on here, that there are actually several things about what Peter says that show us he's pushing back on the cultural expectations of his time, not just endorsing them. Let me just show you a couple of the details that, that, that point us in that direction. Simply the, first of all, simply the fact that he's addressing wives directly makes him different in his time and place. By addressing them, by asking for something from them, by giving them the dignity of their agency and saying, here's a path that's in front of you, choose it. He's acknowledging that they are made in God's image, that they are full of dignity and worth that they are responsible agents just like their husbands with opportunities to do what will honor God. That's Peter being countercultural at that time. Second, Peter is assuming here that some of these women will become Christians without their husbands. He says that in the first verse. Be subject to your husband even if they haven't obeyed the word. In other words, even if you've chosen a different religion than them. Even if you worship a different God than they do. Even if your community now it's part of the local church, is completely different from theirs. Now, in our context, that's not uncommon at all. But, but in, in Peter's context, it was radical and even written against that women would have their own religion separate from their husbands. So I mentioned last week that, that this section in Peter's letter is an example of something that a lot of writers were doing in this time, known as kind of what we often call it a household code, laying out Here's what it would look like for each person in this household to, to live well in society. That non-Christians were doing this. Famous Greek philosophers like Aristotle have these codes in some of their writings. And a guy, a Greek writer named Plutarch had one of these codes in one of his writings. And he wrote about wives too. But what he said about wives is that you have to assume that the husband decides for the family what the religion will be and who their friends will be. The wives will just follow in line with what the husband chooses on behalf of the family. His gods become your gods. You don't have your separate gods. His friends, his community, your friends, your community. Peter's not captive to the culture he inherited, though. The wife for Peter is not just along for the ride. 
He's writing to women who are following Jesus and that belong to a community of friends that's completely separate for their husbands. He's not, he's not just endorsing his culture's expectations. Here's another example of why we know he's not doing that. In just a few verses from now, he's going to write to husbands and describe wives as co-heirs with their husbands of the grace of life. What he says in that verse, in verse 7, puts women on the same playing field as men where it counts most. In God's eyes, everyone is equal, no matter what differences their culture imposes on how they're treated and how they're viewed. There is no hierarchy before Jesus. What Peter says there is consistent with what Paul says in Galatians 3. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. Hopefully what these examples are pointing you to is just just pulling out a couple of references from Peter's words here. Hopefully what they're confirming for you is that that Peter's Peter's perspective fits in with, with what we know more generally about early Christianity. It was very positive and countercultural in its perspective on women. Women were crucial, not just to the numbers of Christians in early Christianity, but to their standing and to the stability of those communities. It was women who were recorded in the first accounts of Jesus' life as the witnesses to the resurrection. In their time and place, their, their testimony, as eyewitness testimony, would not have been considered in court. It was not legal to cite them as evidences. But for those who are writing the Gospels, the first people to see Jesus alive again are these women with names that you can go and check with to find out. They were faithful when others fell away. In the Gospels, it's the women who stay true to Jesus while his, while his big, strong, strapping men disciples run away, scared. And, and in Acts, right alongside other men who were leaders, teachers, and, and uh, patrons of local churches, you have named women playing a huge role in the stability of early Christianity. Peter's perspective fits right in that. What we see here is not just cultural captivity, but Peter, with his own agenda, charting his own course in this teaching. He says what he says here about wives, not because he couldn't imagine other things to say but because he meant what he said. Because what he says puts out a positive vision for the flourishing of a Christian marriage. So first big misconception about this text we need to clear away if it's something that you're struggling with here is that Peter's just following along with what was expected, that he's to his culture and that he's, that he's just basically parroting what he's heard all of his life. That's not what's happening here. Another common misconception that we need to get out of the way before we focus in on what Peter is saying has to do with what it means to submit to a husband. I think as soon as we hear this submission language, our blood pressure starts to rise and our minds start saying, yeah, but. So are are wives supposed to just check their brains at the door? Are they supposed to, to make their husband's happiness their only objective? Are they supposed to make his every wish their command? Are they supposed to collapse their identity? Any sense of who they are and what they've been through and what they're good at, just collapse it right into who he is and what he's good at and what he's interested in? Are they supposed to collapse their whole identity with his? I think that's where we're tempted to run with this, but we need to pump those brakes and not outrun Peter's actual words. That's not what he's saying. I think a powerful clue to us that that's not what he's saying, that that women are just supposed to do whatever their husbands want. If that's what it means to be subject to women, a powerful clue that, or subject to your husbands, a powerful clue that's not what happen, what's happening here is in verses three and four. Look down there. 
In verses 3 and 4, he gives us an example about adornment. On a quick reading, you might think he's changed his subject here, but he's still talking about being subject to your husband and what he means by it. And in these verses, he says that you're not supposed to make your adorning external. Don't fix up your hair real nice to please your husband. Don't wear gold jewelry you think your your husband will think is pretty. Don't put on clothes that you think will be attractive to him or draw him in. You are not an object for his pleasure. You are not to simply cater to his tastes. Your role in his life is not reducible to the object that he might see when he looks at you. Now, if if Peter were just saying here, be subject to your husbands and meaning, be whatever your husband wants you to be, then you would expect him to say, you know what, just find out what your husband likes what kind of hairstyle he's attracted to, what kind of clothes are, his, are, are suited to his taste. Just figure out what he likes and, and, then, and then reproduce that, be that. Because Peter surely would know of the tendency of men to objectify women. That's not new. That's not a 21st century problem. That's always been there. And Peter's saying, that road, you don't go down it. You're not just about satisfying whatever taste your husband might have. You have another agenda. He's pointing them to a character of heart that is precious to God. So submission to husband, whatever it means, we're about to get into that, whatever it means, it's not based on what your husband wants you to be, but based on what's precious to God. And before I get into more, before I go any further, and get into what it means to be subject to a husband and and how that's good for Christian families. I want to stop right here and say to you, my sisters in Christ, your target is not the image of beauty that you've downloaded from leering men behind all those advertisements and movies that you see all around you. That's not your target. I don't think these verses in verses 3 and 4 are a literal hard ban on any particular hairstyle, much less on wearing clothes you know we should all go around clothed you have to wear clothes the point is don't focus on that don't focus on your clothes or on your hair or on your whatever mold that's been given to you from the outside focus on what's precious to God focus on what he sees there's your target and I want to speak to my brothers in Christ brothers we we need to enable our sisters in this and not make this harder for them Friends, uh, brothers, Madison Avenue is lying to our sisters. Hollywood is lying to our sisters. Instagram is lying every day to our sisters. And you know where Hollywood and Madison Avenue and Instagram get their material for the lies they're telling? They get that material from us. From men with deep pockets and skewed perspective on what's beautiful. We cannot allow our tastes, our sense of what's pretty, to put roadblocks in the paths of our sisters who are trying to walk towards faithfulness to God. And that means we got to be their allies by telling them the truth about what's beautiful. And not just telling them the truth about the beauty that doesn't have an expiration date, that won't grow old and fade out, that's internal and precious in God's sight and in ours. By not just telling them the truth about it, but by actually valuing it.
by not saying one thing with our words and another thing with our actions. Having said all of this, basically this whole time so far, for good or ill, all I've been trying to do is keep you from misreading this text. (laughs) Having cleared away as much as we can, misinterpretations we might bring into this text because of what we assume when we hear these words. We do want to talk about what it, it does say. What is Peter trying to say and why is Peter saying it? I want to answer those two questions before we move to what he says to husbands. What is his vision for how wives in a Christian marriage who are hoping on Christ relate to their husbands? What does he mean by be subject to your husband and why is this the command? I want to give you an answer to those questions and then I want to unpack it. Think what he means here when he says, wives be subject to your husbands is a posture of submission to leadership, the leadership of the husband over the family. That's what I think he means, a posture of trust and submission to the leadership of a husband over the family, knowing that that husband has been put there and given that responsibility by God. And that the reason this is important, the reason for this posture is rooted not in the incapacity of wives, not even in the trustworthiness of their husbands, but in their hope in God. The reason wives are commanded to do this is not about their own incapacity for leadership or their tr- it's not about trust in their husbands, uh, that their husbands are just gonna kill it, they're gonna nail it, they're gonna do it right all the time, but it's rooted in their hope in God. Now I wanna unpack this definition before we move on to what he says to husbands. The reason I think that this is what he's meaning by subjection, this posture of trust and submission to the leadership of a husband over a family has to do with, again, what he says in verses three and four. Verses three and four, I think, is where he's explaining more about what he means in verse one. So he has to say, I don't mean all these external things. I don't mean be subject to whatever whims or fancies your husband has, just go do whatever he wants from you. I don't mean that. He's saying, what you do wanna put on where you do want to be adorned is in the hidden person with imperishable beauty defined by a gentle and quiet spirit. So the way I'm reading this, the way I'm pulling the thread of Peter's thought here is whatever it means to be subject to your husbands is enabled by this beautiful, imperishable character of a gentle and quiet spirit. The submission he's talking about looks like a gentle and quiet spirit. So what does that mean? This is a word that's used a few other times in the New Testament, mostly of Jesus. It's a word that means not insistent on your own rights, not pushy. This is quotes from from a commentator on this word. Not pushy, not selfishly assertive, not demanding one's own way. That's what the gentle, quiet spirit means. Note that this does not mean you're voiceless. It does not mean you're not a collaborator. It doesn't mean you're not a key contributor to the vision for the family's life. That's not it at all. What it does mean is that he's asking wives to choose not to angle for influence, not to protect their turf, not to manipulate or rise to the challenge, but to take on willingly by their own choice, to take on a posture of respect, of trust, of enabling the vision that their husband has, of being an ally for it. 
I think that's what he means in that difficult phrase about a difficult example in five and six about Sarah and Abraham. You know, the, the, the word that just jumps off the page at us when we read that example is, is Sarah calling Abraham Lord. And we think, so is, what, is Peter trying to tell us that all wives should go around calling their husbands Lord and Master and just obeying them? Again, that's where we take our associations with these words and we just plug them right in as if that's what Peter means when it isn't what he means. He's referring to a situation in Genesis, a story in Israel's past where, where, uh, where Sarah had been told that she was going to have a baby even though her husband was way past the age of contributing to that. Uh, so she's almost laughing at the idea. And in her laughing, she refers to him as her master or her Lord. Like, my master is too old for this, is basically what she says. All she was doing was using the term her culture used to show respect. Even when it was calling bluff almost on, on the a possibility of this thing that had been told to her, she still used a term that didn't belittle him. It didn't chop him down to size. It didn't stand over him and mock him. It wasn't making fun of him, but was respectful towards him. And it points to, the, again, this, this posture of, of a gentle and quiet spirit being not one who stands as judge over your husband's performance. Not one who's looking for every weakness that you can bring back to the surface for him to see. Not one who sees him as a, as a, as a combatant with you for control over the marriage, but seeing him as a precious resource that God has given, who isn't perfect, but is given by God that you want to cultivate and enable where you can it's about respect and trust. That's what he means. So why? I think that's what Peter has in mind. To be subject to your husband is to, is to trust his leadership over your family and look to enable him and be with him and for him, not to chop him down to size. But why would he command this of wives? I think this is the most interesting piece to this text. And where we, we get a clearer window into what Peter does mean and what Peter doesn't mean. Why this posture of trust and deference and respect and advocacy for the husband and the family? Peter doesn't leave us to wonder about the answer to that. And it has nothing to do with the women not having leadership qualities. It has nothing to do with husbands being perfectly worthy of trust. In fact, when Peter explains himself, he doesn't say anything about these husbands at all. It has everything to do with the wife's focus on God. She looks to God. She sees what's precious to God. She aims at the beauty of character that God loves. And she trusts her husband and follows him, his leadership in the family, as those holy women of old did, verse 5. How did they do it? Because they hoped in God. Do you see him coming back to hope? What enabled these holy women of old to follow the leadership of their husbands, most of whom, just based on the stories we have in the Old Testament, were not always trustworthy men. They made colossal mistakes, and yet their wives were, were, were trusting their leadership. Why? Because they ultimately hoped in God, who is able to fulfill all his promises made to them and to their husbands. Peter is calling on these Christian wives to trust the leadership even of husbands who aren't Christians, not because they trust those husbands fully, but because they trust the God who has called them to this faithfulness. It's natural for a wife to wonder, I think, hearing these words. Not just to wonder, but to feel a kind of exposure, a kind of vulnerability, and to wonder, if, if, if I don't stand up for myself, who will stand up for me in my marriage? And the answer Peter is pointing us to here 
by focusing on what's precious in God's sight and by reminding us of the hope in God that these women have modeled is that your reason for security and hope in your marriage is that God will stand up for you. That God will see you even if your husband doesn't. That God is the one who sets the agenda and who's promised to care for you. And he's the one who set aside an inheritance that's secure and complete. And your target in your marriage is a confidence in God that shapes how you relate to your husband. Knowing that because he takes care of you, you don't have to defend yourself. Now I want to press pause here as well. And just say in case you're wondering that I do not believe Peter is here addressing abusive marriages. That is a separate question the Bible speaks to in other, in other texts. And if it's something you're experiencing, or if you're close to someone who's experiencing that, then please come and speak to me after the service so that we can talk about how, uh, how to, to, to take next steps that will be healthy for you in your marriage or for your friends that you're counseling. That is not the situation that Peter has in mind here. He has in mind what we might call a general normal situation in marriage, where yes, You're mistreated sometimes because you're married to a sinner, but where it hasn't reached the level of abuse. Now, we can talk about what that level is, where that line is. I'd love that conversation. So please come and talk to me later. For now, I want to say, before I move to the the stuff on husbands, if, friends, if you're out there and you've, you've, you've maybe had some misconceptions cleared away, that's a good thing, but you're starting to hear that Peter's message still does hold out a role for you in marriage that doesn't sound like good news to you. Maybe if you're even raising a flag in your own mind against, against me as the one who's speaking to you because you're thinking, well, you're a husband, so of course it's easy for you to say this would be good for the marriage. I mean, you're the one who benefits from this power dynamic. And what I would say to you is, you're right. I do not have the position I would need to stand here and tell you to submit to your husband. You should never take my word for something like that. That would be a terrible idea. This, this word, this command to you is only good news for you, friends, sisters. It's only good news for you if, if Jesus died because he loves you, rose again because he's powerful, and laid aside his life and rose again to make sure you had what's best for you, and then told you to be subject to your husband. The only person with the credibility to tell you to embrace this model for your marriage is Jesus. Embrace it not on anybody else's experience or certainly not on my authority, but because he says this is good. My next response would be that you've got the wrong idea about power. If you're thinking, well, of course it's easy for you to say this is a good thing because you're the one who'd end up with all the power in your marriage, then I would say, not only do you not see much into my marriage, but you you, you, you get the wrong idea about power. And that takes me straight into this section on husbands and we're going to spend the last few minutes together this morning one verse is all peter gives to husbands but though the words are fewer here there is nothing lightweight about what he says it is just as confrontational to the expectations of the people he was writing to the culture of the time what he says to husbands is just as confrontational to them and it's just as rooted in the hope that peter loves talking about the hope he's just pointed wives back to in trying to uh, counsel them to to be subject to their husband. Once again, in in what Peter says in verse seven here, we get a what and a why. What he's telling husbands to do and why he's telling them to do it. I wanna help you see both of them before we close. Likewise, he says to husbands, 
Here's the what. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That's the what. Show them honor. Defer to them. Be understanding and empathetic and attentive to their needs. That's how you should live with your wives because they're the weaker vessel. We were all doing fine up to that point, weren't we? And then we come to that screeching halt. Weaker vessel? How is this not demeaning to women? Didn't you just say there's no reason to tie back different roles to different capacities based on what Peter says? Can't you just see from this verse that he clearly thinks women should be subject because they're weaker and not as qualified to lead as men are? What do you mean weaker? Oh, you also, I mean, in this day and age where women do have more opportunities than they would have in Peter's time, we know better, don't we? than to think of women as, as weaker in a whole range of ways. It's like, do you even know any women? I mean, I do not know a stronger person than my wife. I don't know a better teacher than the woman who sat on my dissertation committee. I don't know a better writer than my favorite novelist who happens to be a woman or a more incisive and clear thinker than my favorite essay writer who also happens to be a woman. We all know women and know that we know better, don't we, than to think of them as weak. So what can we do with this, with this verse? I mean, isn't this just Peter, again, culturally captive? Not so fast. Unfortunately, this weaker vessel word, this language here, it's kind of like a Rorschach test and one of those ink block tests that basically, we're basically in the weaker vessel. You think immediately whatever you are, uh, you, you, you import into that language whatever you already think about the weakness of women. So if, if there's some category you think women are particularly vulnerable or weaker or not up to snuff, and I'm talking about the history of interpretation, you plug that right in here to weaker vessel and you got the proof that you need that you were right about them all along. And that's not a healthy way, a respectful way to read the text. What we want to do is understand what Peter meant by the word. It isn't just a, a catch-all for any weakness you might have seen or expected or assumed about anyone ever. When Peter talks about women as a weaker vessel, he's using a word as a metaphor, vessel as a metaphor for the body. He's not the only one to do that in the scriptures. And what he's pointing to is a reality that, that does hold true in a general, if not exclusive way, across the spectrum. Generally, women's bodies are weaker than men's bodies. Now, I know that there's not a woman among you who couldn't beat me in an arm wrestling, all right? So not exactly the best visual for the point I'm trying to make here. But there's a reason that you've got different classifications at Vanderbilt University. There are women's soccer teams and men's soccer teams and all down the line because typically the bodies are different. And the reason Peter is highlighting that here, the reason he's highlighting that here, I think helps us to, it helps us to understand that he's, He's drawing attention to the, to the weaker, by and large, weaker bodies of women in the specific command he's given to their husbands. I think, I think we have to see these two things together. He's telling them, live with an understanding way and show deference to them, preference for them in honor. In other words, be careful with them because history is full of examples of men using the stronger bodies they have to have their way with the weaker bodies of women. That's not a 21st century problem. The Me Too movement is only shining new light on something that's as old as time. He's writing to husbands acknowledging you could abuse her if you chose to, but you will not. Not if you're with Jesus. 
She's too precious for that. She is not an object to you. She is not a commodity that you get to consume at will. She's not a resource that you drink down till it's gone. She is a precious vineyard that you cultivate. Her fruitfulness, what she produces in, in, in her life is your responsibility to cultivate and to pour into and to invest in. Her flourishing is on you and should be your chief desire. Men, he's saying, husbands live in an understanding way, showing honor and deference because she's got a weaker body and it's, and it's something you could choose to exploit if you wanted to. That's the what. Notice the why. Once again, he goes right back to hope. Just like he did with women. He's saying, you live with your wives in an understanding way like this because they're heirs with you of the grace of life. Everything I talked about when I talked about that inheritance, Peter's saying, back in chapter one, the inheritance that Jesus died and rose again to give you. The inheritance that's now protected and guarded for you until the day that, that, you, that you get to experience it for yourself by God and his power. That inheritance, that's hers too. So the most important thing about you is also the most important thing about her. She's a daughter of God and everything that is Christ's is also hers. She is not your resource to be drained down. She is your sister before she is anything else to you. So honor her. Figure out in an understanding way what's best for her and do it even if it hurts you. Friends, I hope what you can see is that Peter's words here are pointing us towards the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified for sinners, risen for sinners, and protecting an inheritance that sinners don't deserve but get to enjoy by faith for those sinners. He's pointing to that hope, to the inheritance that is his favorite subject. And he's telling us that when you look to an inheritance as your primary orientation on life, power is not the main dynamic in your marriage. Without an inheritance where you're only going to get as good as you can provide for yourselves, it's all out war. Nature is red in tooth and claw. So will be your marriage if you'll only get what you can provide for yourself. But when you're hopeful and you know that everything you need and more than you could ever even know to want is already provided for you by Jesus, that nothing else can take it away, then instead of power, and the struggle for it, defining your relationship with each other. You relate to one another instead as servants. Service, not power, defines your relationship. Because you belong to a Savior who came to you as a suffering servant. Who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But willingly emptied himself and became like a, a, a human, fully human. So that he could die and be obedient even to the point of death on a cross. His dynamic becomes yours in a marriage. And in a hopeful marriage, in a hopeful marriage, we get to be for one another and not against one another. God, I pray that you would help us to accept and to be not only willing to, to embrace these words, but, but eager to embrace them because we trust in you, not trust in anything else or anyone else or what anyone else has to say, but because we trust in you and your goodness I pray for those who are struggling with what this text says and, and feeling themselves being pushed away from Jesus, that you would stop that drift 
and bring them back into, the, into a clear view of his beauty and remind them that it is precisely the goodness that Jesus models for us in his service to us that drives us to relate to one another in this way in marriage. And I pray for our marriages all over this room that you would protect us from the power dynamic that comes so naturally to us and drive us to one another as servants instead. And I pray that you would help us as a community to be constantly pointing one another back to the scriptures for, for perspective and for hope and for healing. Let me pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.